This week, we're talking to Andy Oliver, who I think we can agree we must describe as human dynamo. Her rap sheet's massive. Chef, restaurateur, singer, performer, actor, writer, and a radio and TV star. God, it just makes me feel tired listening to that list. And do you know, is that she could be really sickening if she wasn't so damned lovely. <laughs> She's just a fantastic human being. I met her through GBM when she, Great British Menu, when she took over from Prulith, the great Prulith, and it could have been quite tricky. Now, Oliver and I were old hands and she was, you know, came in, and actually it could not have been better or easier. The dynamic was quite different. She was quite a different personality, and she was just absolutely fabulous to work with. Very respectful, I'm pleased to say. <laughs> and tonnes of energy. And, well, more than tonnes. I mean, you know, she could light up the country, that woman. Andy Oliver, what an absolute joy to see you. It's oh, just too long. I'm always too long, Matthew, but this time really, <laughs> really much. It's been a terrible long time. Um, it's lovely to see your face. Hi, Lois. Lovely to see you, my dear. And you. Long time no see. Now, how are things going on the on the show? The things are great. I mean, you know, it's a kind of brave new world up there, up here, up there. I'm already up here. Um, it's good. <laughs> it's... Uh, you know, I, I never cease to be amazed, Matthew, as you will obviously know, that there's so so much talent in this country. You know, I've just come off a day with three, I think, of the most impressive chefs I've seen in quite some time. You know, when it's just the scores are so close, it's like watching a, a kind of horse race and the pack's that tight and one edge is in front <laughs> and then they're back together and then another one edge is in front. It's been like that all week. I'm a little spent. It sounds really <laughs> dramatic. Just tell me, what, what was it like when you came to join, when you, you, when, when you filled Prue's mighty boots and you joined Oliver and myself? What, what were you going you through know, your mind? It was, well, I, I think retrospectively, because people ask me this a lot, but I think retrospectively I should have been more worried about it. <laughs> but I, I, because I don't think I really... Understand. Even though I used to watch the show all the time, watch the competition all the time, I don't think I'd really fully... I mean, I understood it, but I hadn't really soaked up exactly the kind of magnitude of what I was kind of taking on, to be honest with you. And then you and Oliver were just so lovely. Oh, you were so friendly from the moment. I'm, no, but it's just true. And, uh, you know, for me, that meant everything, you know. Like, the team at Great British Media is always very familial. Mm. The way this programme is made is a very familial uh, group of people coming together to do this thing that they love. And when I walked in, you guys were just open-armed and open-hearted and made me feel completely... Open-mouthed? Open mouths, yeah. Obviously, quite the thing, particular that Peyton one. Uh, and, but just, you just made me feel completely at home straight away. And I think maybe because of that, I was less worried about it than I perhaps should have been. 
what what does it feel like what does the difference feel like between judging and presenting or comparing the show because presumably now you've seen a whole different side of it yeah absolutely seeing a different side of it i think perhaps as judges always underestimated i mean we always you always mm. know that the chefs have worked really hard but i think you're kind of closer to the heartbreak yeah and and and, and also the triumph in fact when you're when now that i've started hosting it because I start with them at the beginning of the week, you know, you lose one after fish, which is a terrible thing, which we never used to see, Matthew, you know. No, Some no. poor chef gets their heart broken and then they have to leave. The magnitude of that is that they've all worked on and created a whole menu and somebody cooks two courses and they don't get to cook the rest of it and they've been practising it for months, you know. Mm. So that's always a bit heartbreaking and, and I get very attached to them very quickly and I think when we were judging all together Matthew I you know it was easier to be dispassionate about Mm. it and to be able to look at purely the food particularly because you're blind tasting as well so you don't have the same emotional attachment to the chefs like I now watch the dishes evolve throughout the week and I see the journey that each of the chefs goes on with the dish you know they, they they're incredibly agile yeah you know, the way that they change things. Can I say something? Is, is I think that one of the changes it brought about is that rather than mothering Oliver and myself, you had to mother all the chefs. Your relationship with those is, honestly, you're like a little oh. clucky hen. Oh, come on, boys, now calm down. Will you I'm, be able to get there in time? It's so sweet. I know, <laughs> I mean, very... honestly... <laughs> It's really stressful. I mean, I, you know, and then I feel ridiculous because I'm going, oh, my God, it's so stressful. And I'm not the one who's going through what they're going through. But, <laughs> you know, when you watch somebody giving their all, and they really do, you know this, Matthew, they give mm. everything they've got to those dishes. Sometimes yeah. it works, sometimes it doesn't. And when you watch somebody being that open, it's very hard not to be maternal or not to feel yeah. uh, uh, parental in, 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 in any kind of way. You know? I, think I think your relationship gives it a sort of unique dimension, actually, to, uh, in terms of food shows, because that relationship between the, you know, the, the presenter, uh, the host uh, and the, the chefs, you don't see it on any, uh, any other show. And I think it helps bring out that humanity, which was always part of the show. Yeah, but you you didn't start off as a as as a foodista, did you? You started in you started in music, didn't you? I started off in music. It's interesting, really, because actually, when I look at it, mm. quite a lot of people move between food and music. You know, if you look at I don't know, with Calice, for instance, she started as a singer. She's now a chef. She still does music. I I think that there's a an intrinsic link between the two things, because there's a... And I think, actually, between all kind of creative paths and endeavour, really, because you, for it to be Mm. good, you have to mean it. It has to be your truth, and it has to come from somewhere really honest. And that's the same if you're writing a song, if you're performing a song, if you're cooking food. There's nothing worse than technically brilliant food that has no heart and soul. You know, I remember you telling me ages ago, Matthew, that the best thing you'd eaten that year was a, a toasted <laughs> cheese sandwich at that place that you used to love going to. You know, when they sang all the sea shanties. Cheesy tiger. Cheesy <laughs> tiger. Oh, that's a good memory, yeah. Sorry, what and where is Cheesy Tiger? <laughs> ah, well, I'm glad you asked me that one. Cheesy Tiger was, it was, I, I don't know if it's still there, it was on the harbour wall at Margate. And there, it was a little place, and 
I, it was a long, it was a long evening, and I ended up there. And they used to do these tasted cheese sandwiches that had chili in a big, big fat chili inside, and that really revved them up. So you had those. There was a bar next door where you could get a pub, and I went there one evening, and the place was rammed, and there were these three blokes singing sea shanties, pint in one hand. Cheesy what's it in the other and singing What shall we do with a drunken sailor? What shall we do with a drunken sailor? At the top of my voice. I have rarely been happy. Oh Dad, that is <laughs> is that's very up your street. I can well, see it. Well. So, he was so happy. <laughs> you just touched on something, Andy, that I think makes so much sense about the similarities between food and music. Now I'm thinking of loads of people who've dabbled in both, but with both food yeah. and music, there's nowhere to hide, is there? I mean, you're putting it out there. There's nowhere to hide, right? You, you're being honest and you're being courageous in what you're doing. Yeah, you, ha- you have to make yourself vulnerable, really, to, to do either well. You have to be vulnerable. It has to come from a, a place of, of real honesty. And, and it's often also about the intent with which you undertake the moment. You know, if you're, if you're singing a song to a, 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 a room full of people... What, how you put it across, like telling the story. The best singers are real storytellers. They're real, you know, they want to impart the, the narrative arc of the song. It's not just the notes and it's not just the, you know, so hearing somebody who's trilling up and down scales and doing all that yeah. stuff, it's very impressive, but it's not moving. For it to be moving, mm. they have to really, it has to really matter to them. And I think that food is the same. The best mm food that we eat Matthew the best things that we ever when we were sitting next to each other and 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 since and before then is you know the things that we both love have always come from people that have got real heart and 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 also something to say I think there's also that the there's a performative element about them both isn't there you are giving and you're asking for some sort of response from I've always thought that, that that cooks or chefs are failed actors you know can't learn the lines get stage fright but darling we just love the applause. <laughs> Did you love the applause? Did you when you when you were singing? Was that was that the moment then you when that absolutely. roar of applause went out? Absolutely, absolutely. There's nothing like it. The lights, the lights, all the attention. It's a fantastic. Thing, but, it, <laughs> but it's actually, you know what it is. It's about feeling like you're in the, the eye of the storm, like you're in the middle. You're in that calm mm. middle place, and you can be singing in some nuts club and or whatever, or a gig, and there's just kind of insanity going on. And you step onto the stage and you take that mic and the music drives up and you can hone everything in. You can pull all the attention in. There's something really vital about that feeling. And it's the same when you're standing in the kitchen and beautiful things that you have created from your mind and your heart are going over the past. And people, are you can see their faces light up when they taste the food there's nothing like that feeling uh, how, how, how did you get there how did you how did it all start from what music yeah well your whole performative career really I, I, you know I think I've always been like it you know I remember going to kind of kids parties and you know as a kid and entertaining all the other kids through the whole party and then going to my mum, oh, she's amazing. <laughs> well, you know, and I was like nine, <laughs> you know what I mean? And sort of doing some kind of mad pack dancing act, just trying to make other people laugh or trying to make them happy. I think 
you know, it probably stems, you know, and I know people like me always say this all the time. I am weirdly shy. I know it doesn't make sense, but there's a bit of me. (laughs) Doesn't come across, no. I'm much better in a situation where I can kind of control what's going on. And, you know, like if I'm in a really big party, I prefer Mm. to be behind the bars doing the drinks than on the other side, you know what I mean, in a big club or something. If I'm in a... In a in a room like that, I'd rather be on the stage than on the floor. There's something kind of it sounds upside down, but it sort of feels protective to me. There's something quite protective. Well, it is protective because you're not in you're not in the crowd. You're not being you know swinging in the breeze. You're you're in a defined yeah. space with a clear role and a clear yes. objective, and it's yours, and you can own it. Yes, and I and I think that singing is the same and cooking is the same, and also you kind of. You get to make other people happy. Like I, you know, I'm really bad at dating, like a one-on-one date with someone. I just, I can't. It gives me absolute horror, anxiety, hives. I'd rather do anything than go on a weird date with somebody. I mean, luckily I've been with Garfield for 150 years. So I don't well, I've <laughs> I can't go on. I've been on like two dates in my whole life because it makes me feel sick to my stomach with absolute fear which people would imagine that I'd probably feel really fine in those but I you know I'd rather be on a stage in front of 200 people than sit and have dinner with some well I think but that also puts it puts safety and numbers into perspective doesn't it because actually you know one-on-one's pretty high it's pretty high pressure it's intense yeah I think so I think it's much higher pressure it's, it's too much for me. I, I really can't. I just get overwhelmed by it. So when did you when did you first go on stage and start with the music? Like, how did that happen with music? I joined. Well, when I the first stage I ever went on, I was about fifteen, and I joined the Suffolk Youth Theatre. Okay. And we did Midsummer Night's Dream, and I was Titania. Oh, love and it. I got this. <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> of course I was Titania. And I had this outfit, and I was like, oh, this is good. I had a long, flowing red thing with a cape and a red sequin skull cap. And I looked in the mirror and I went, oh, love it. This is how I want to dress all the time. This is fantastic. And then I went out and I did this performance and everybody cheered. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, I literally became addicted, I think, to to that kind of attention and that kind of thrill. It is a bit of a thrill, you know. Um, So I was in the Southern Youth Theatre when I was a kid. And that was the first time I ever went on stage. And then I, I sort of started singing by accident. My late brother, uh, this was years and years and years ago, uh, had had a car crash and he was in um, hospital and he had his leg in a, one of those, you know, like a harness thing because they put a pin mm. in his hip. Traction. Yeah, traction, thank you. So I went to visit him at the hospital and Nena Cherry was there, who was like my dearest friend. This was the first time we ever met. And um, yeah. I, I said, oh, hi. And she said, oh, he's told me so much about you. And I said, he's told me so much about you because he kept going on. You've got to meet my sister. You've got to meet my friend. And uh, this is how long ago it was. We went and had a fag together in the hallway of the hospital. I love it. Ago. You could smoke. <laughs> I didn't even really smoke. We just wanted something to do. And when we went back in the room, Sean was already in this, the band that I was in, Rip Rig and Panic, and I hadn't joined the band yet. They'd only been together a few months. And uh, Nana and I said, oh, we're going to sing together. And every bit, because we, we just decided that in the hallway. We were like 17 years old and we were like, I like you, I like you. Let's <laughs> sing together, like really like funny teenage girls. 
And then about three weeks later, the Slits were playing, uh, and there's a, a punk band called the Slits, these amazing women, were playing at the venue. And I went down to see them, and Nana was on stage with the Slits. And at the end of the gig, she pulled me up onto the stage, and I danced, and we just were dancing, dancing, dancing. And at the end of it, Gareth, who was the lead, really, person of Ripping the Panic, said, do you want to come on tour next week? Oh, my God. So I said, all right. And then that was it. And that's how I started singing. I mean, it wasn't, it, you know, <laughs> there was no great design to it. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of how I started, um, you know, performing, really. And, I, you know, much of my earlier life was really like that, I think. Like, just really, like, accidental. I would just fall into doing things. I didn't really make many plans. I didn't really decide, oh, this is the path I'm going to take or this is what I want to do next. I would sort of trip over and fall into a a band or a relationship or a new place to live or I don't know. It was all a bit haphazard, to be honest. Yeah, but I think that's I think that sounds wonderful. I mean, my God, I think that's I mean, you know, too, we think we, we spent certainly my generation spend too much time thinking, planning. What's our life going to look like? What are we what are we going to have done by this age? I mean, it's all just it's it's so well, contrived. Terrible, really. And, you know, I think to be in a mind space where you're open to going with a flow and I, it's just it fits. It, that sounds amazing. Well, I mean, you know, it was it was the end of punk. Yeah. You know, and so and I was, you know, I was a punk when I was a teenager because that's the, you know, I'm 59. I'm exactly the right. I was exactly the right age to be swept up in that kind of uh, the fury and the joy of punk. And, mm. and it was it was a brilliant moment for young people because we got to, you know, form ourselves in a completely brand new image because we just felt like no one else had done that before and no one else had looked like that before or felt like that. Before. Obviously, it's rubbish. Because every generation <laughs> has their own. Well. Now, I've seen you in your hippie stuff, Kathy. No. <laughs> less of that, less of that, if you don't mind. Hang on, I haven't. What's going on? <laughs> have you not seen those pictures, Lois? Come on. I have. We'll talk separately. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen them. Oh, I thought those those photographs had been lost somewhere. Very I love those pictures. Long star. <laughs> I had hair for a start. You had. Hair. I had hair and cheekbone. God, oh, <laughs> all those things which have long since disappeared. Now listen, but you are sort of you know, you're a you're a sort of multi performer, aren't you? Because you sing, you present. You've also you know you did you did the vagina monologues at the Albert Hall. I did. That was terrifying. And, most weirdly of all, it seemed to me, you were on the, the number one ladies' detective agency. Oh, that was really random as well. That was kind of... Do you know why? So I was up for the lead in that. Really? And uh, with Anthony Mingella was the producer. And it came down to me and Jill Scott, and Jill Scott got it, thankfully, because the executive producer was Harvey Weinstein. <gasps> <laughs> oh my god I mean, that's a safe by the bell moment right oh, okay but I was down to the last year and I didn't get it and it was just one of those things I was like oh that's a shame that would have been fun and I didn't really think about it again and then they were they'd started filming and I got a call saying would you come up for and read for this part and I went and read for this part and they were like and then I suddenly got it I was like oh my god so I ended up going to Botswana just for like I was only in it for one episode and uh I went and had the most amazing time and met a really incredible woman called Anika Noni Rose who played the secretary in uh in uh, uh, uh number one days with Texas H and she the reason I'm telling you is she's quite impressive she plays 
the first black Disney princess, you know, in The Princess and the Frog. Oh, yes. That's my friend. Yeah. Got the most incredible voice. She's one of those, you know, I can sing, I can do a bit of this, but she's one of those people, she can like sing, you know what I mean? It's like, oh my God. So yes, when I was singing for the Pope, you're like, you sang for the Pope? She's quite extraordinary and she's very, very funny. What an experience. How incredible. Yeah, it was great, actually. It was great. Uh, Botswana was uh, uh, amazing. We had a really good time. We were staying in this weird hotel and we got quite, we were really bored of the food because it was just like, I don't know what, there's no market where we were. It's like things have been broken down. There's like a really crappy mall with really shit food and the food in the hotel was shit. And I, and I was there for two weeks, you know, there's only so much terrible food I yeah. can take, basically. So we went to the hotel man and said, um, can we take, we found a part of the hotel that had a kitchen in it and another like dining room. So we said, can we have those rooms? And he was like, sure, what, what do you want to do? We said, we just want to make dinner. We went shopping and we brought it all in and I ended up cooking <laughs> for like three days for everybody. We hung up fairy lights. We put up a little sound system. We had music. We had a little oh, bar wow. in the corner. We had chicken on. We put the rice on. I was like, my daughter would kill me. It's like my daughter's absolute nightmare. It's like I cook chicken everywhere I go. It drives me like absolutely crazy. And I found myself staggering through the foyer with like big trays of chicken and pots of rice because I was just like, we can't, you, you know, if you're going to do something, you need to be fed well, yeah. don't you? Yeah, there's nothing worse than than bad sort of sterile hotel oh. food and you do, you feel oh, you just you so and you feel badly nourished, not just in your body, it's but in Mother your Oliver. It's Mother Oliver. It's Mother Oliver all over again. Yeah, I know. It's just how I do. It's just my way. You know, we always used to have this thing when the cuter was little. We still do it a bit now. We used to call it Waifs and Strays Christmas. So it's like if anybody has nowhere to go. Or they're on their own. I can't bear thinking about people when we're all together having a lovely time. We didn't even really have very much money. But, you know, the good thing about being able to cook is you can make £10 go a really long way, yeah. you know. So I, I learned how to, when you know, when I was a single parent, I had no money when I had, you know, Nikita for quite a long time, you know. So we learned how to cook like abundant food that feels abundant and that felt like you can share it with the whole world with, you know, 10 quid. Quite a handy yeah. trick. Where did this Where did this food come from? Because you talked about you know, how you became a performer, but was food always there always, as part of your life? Always there. My dad was a real kind of... He loved to put on a party, my father. That's why with me it's not just the cooking, it's the whole picture. It's not just making food, yeah. it's creating a whole energy and a whole experience. To me, it's like a 360 degree thing. Yeah. It's like not just making a little result. If you can do that, put on some nice tunes, get the lights right, lay the table, get yourself some doilies, Matthew. I'm all very oh, big on doilies. I'm exact I'm so doily. the same. Do you like a doily though? <laughs> I just love if even if it's just a, I love it. It's, even if it's just a meal for three people, you've got to think about everything. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but so far you, you haven't mentioned wine, beer, rum. Oh, no, that's all part of Drink it. of any that's kind. That's all part of it. The drinks are set up. You've got the ice ready. You've got the food right. You've got the table right. You've got the tunes right. And then you can have people around. Because you know? you've got... My, my thing is, right, you've got to... The best thing ever is if you go to someone's house and they're making a meal 
and you walk in and you feel immediately that you can be 100% yourself. And whether that's you want to sit cross-legged on the floor and drink a beer out of a can, or you want to sit on a bar stool with your legs crossed and looking glamorous, got to be able to do whatever you want to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Or that which your body will let you to do. I'd love to sit on a bar stool with my legs crossed. Unfortunately, that's never going to happen. You are you are glamorous in yourself, Andy. You don't need any I'm of that. Glamorous. Stuff. I'm just not very bendy. Not very. I bendy. thought of you as really glamorous. Actually, you were. Uh, you know. Yeah, you I, are. I, I think I am in my own way. Yes. I'm not glamorous in the kind of conventional you know, way. Instagram shine. No. <laughs> I have my own way of being. I, I remember going. I was going to go to a fancy dress party once and. I hate fancy dress parties. They get on my nerves. I'm always a bit like, oh, mad me. Look at me. I'm a cat. Whatever. Sharp. Just gets on my nerves. And I said to Nana, I've got to go to this fancy dress party. I don't know what to do. And she said, but you're the fanciest person I know. <laughs> Just go as yourself. And I was like, yes, that's I'm the one. Fancy. <laughs> I was telling you about my dad. So let me tell you about my dad. So my dad would have these parties. So for me, one of the most comforting sounds in the world is being in bed and hearing quite a loud party happening around you. Clinking of glasses, people laughing their asses yeah. off, just having a good time. I can, to me, I don't, I never understand if people go, I'm trying to go to sleep. Can you turn the music down? I'm like, well, just go to bed. If you want to go to sleep, just go to bed and go to sleep. To me, that's a, that's a lullaby yeah. because that's how I grew up. My dad, you know, he was a terrible father, frankly, but he taught me three things. He taught me how to throw a good party. He taught me about good music and he taught me how to cook as well. Him and my mum both taught me how to cook. My dad was one of those cooks. He'd use everything in the house. There'd be food up the walls, but he'd make a damn fine meal. My mother was more, (laughs) you know, uh, utilitarian, everyday cooking. But my dad was a feaster. He was a banqueter. He was a kind of Caribbean Henry VIII. (laughs) But you have you have yourself, Angie. You, you've done a great deal to to promote the reputation of Caribbean food in this country. I mean, you've done on television. You've run restaurants. It's been at the heart of of, yeah. of your own cooking. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, Matthew. And I, I just feel that the thing with Caribbean food, you know, is that people underestimate. People misunderstand what it is. They think it's one thing. For a start, they think it's Jamaican food, which drives me absolutely bananas. Uh, I'm, my family are from Antigua. It's quite a long way from Jamaica. The Caribbean is a huge place with loads and loads of different... It's not one place. It's many places with many stories and many different cuisines and many people within that cooking, doing their own version of, you know, Caribbean food. It wasn't one way it's to make regional. anything. It's regionalised as, just as food everywhere is regionalised. Yes. It? Has its roots yes, absolutely. in place. Yeah, absolutely and completely. And the thing about the Caribbean, that's, there's been so many people have passed through it, you know, for good and for bad. Obviously, we know about the bad and uh, there's also been good. But, you know, whoever's gone through it has left behind mm. their imprint, in a culinary imprint. You know, so in our food, there's Portuguese, there's Indian, there's Chinese, there's Spanish, there's French, there's English, there's Irish, there's Scottish. It's the weirdest connections you make. You know, Irish. patties became people from Cornwall, you know, brought pasties to the Caribbean and we sort of jazzed them up with the indentured Indian workers brought curry spices and we started making curries and that went into the pasty pastry and that's how uh, Caribbean patties became yellow and hot because we started filling them with different things but they they are born from the Cornish pasty, you know, and there's so many different 
dishes. Well, the, the thing to me that uh, epitomizes it and uh, uh, fascinates me is a dish called um, Vinidalush. Now, Vinidalush, I've, I've probably told you this, Matthew, because I love this story. I'm sure I bang on about it all the time, but I just love it. Tell me again. So, Tell me again. My mum would say to me, oh, I really want Vinidalush. I was like, well, I've never heard of it. So I, you know, I made some family inquiries and I discovered it just means marinating it basically they marinate pork in vinegar for a few days and then you either double fry it or you roast it you can do one or the other and then when I looked into the origins of it I realized it came from a Portuguese dish called vinha da luz where they marinate meat in vinegar and then they roast it and it's the same methodology as vindaloo in India, in Goa, ah. which is where the Portuguese went in India. And Vindaloo, they marinate the meat in vinegar before they cook it. So these three dishes are completely linked and are, are in the Caribbean because of the Portuguese and because of the Indian um, heritage there. And to me, that sums up Caribbean cooking. If you look at the ingredients on the plate, you look at the origins of a dish, it tells you so much I mean, it's true of all food. It tells you so much about who came before, why they were there and what happened. Yeah, I mean, food, food is edible history, isn't it? Yeah, which I love. And I think that, that that is a, you know, that to me is a never-ending story. So it's endlessly fascinating to me. So I've written in my book, which comes out next year, I've written this book. And in the book, I, you know, it's one of the things I started to really explore. And it's one of the things we're exploring with um, our, our kitchen project, you know, with Adley Kitchen. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, for, for me, if you, if you really look back and you start to really understand the origins of your, not just the food on your plate, but how that food got there, then you look at the people behind that. And that, um, that helps you to understand how you got here mm. and also where you might be going next. And it, so the past informs the present and then uh, shapes the future. Wow. <laughs> I know. That sounded like I've rehearsed it, didn't it? Thanks, Professor. <laughs> that sounded like I've rehearsed no, it. It's all like, true. It's absolutely I right. I was just going to say that actually you talking about how the past informs the present, etc. You you went to, I think you were in, correct me if I'm wrong, you were in Barbados and you went with your daughter, Makita, and you spoke to the LGBTQ community. That was such a fascinating yeah. conversation about, oh, you know, the hangover, actually, of societal effects. And I was really shocked, I have to say, um, and learned a lot in terms of the LGBTQ struggles that are happening there in a way that I think most of us probably can't appreciate. Yeah, yeah and I, you know, I was so happy that we could do that because for me, you know, you can't say that you're going to... Uh, include because one of the one of the reasons one of the not one of the reasons but one of the things that we really wanted to achieve with those films that we made in the Caribbean was to center Caribbean people in this in the center of the story and have us tell our own stories because generally when there's a travelogue in the Caribbean it's from the outside in and there are people you know from the outside going oh look aren't they interesting and look what they eat and look what mm. they do and blah blah, blah you know etc like you know age-old travelogues have always been so for us it was really important to give voice to as many different people that, as we could in the Caribbean and you know I and the and Nikita and the you know our, our production team were really really wanted to make sure that we included LGBTQ voices because it 
there's still separation culturally within yeah. our, you know. And one of the uh, women that we spoke to, Rohan, actually, who was the is the woman in Barbados who organised the first Pride, Gay Pride in Barbados. She's an extraordinary woman. And she was really interesting about it because she was saying that um, actually pre-colonial arrival in the Caribbean, those that it was it was colonials that brought the stigma to LGBTQ mm. people to the Caribbean. Prior to that, living was much more tribal. It wasn't and, there, yeah. Exactly. And also, you know, obviously the African African people weren't there then. But the people that were there then, the indigenous, were the Arawaks, the Caribs, and um, the Creole people in, in the Caribbean. And they, and the Taino, and they lived very differently and didn't have all the, that kind of social infrastructure and stigmatization mm. of certain groups that came with Christianity and colonial rule and so when they brought enslaved Africans to the Caribbean they instilled those mores and codes so yeah. one of the things that frustrates her is that you now have Caribbean culture viewed through a lens and people are kind of looking down and going oh look they're so primitive and it's like well that's what you well done yeah <laughs> welcome to your yeah. work <laughs> you know and uh, it, was, it was really lovely to meet those people. What is the title of your book? It's called The Pepper Pot Diaries. And Pepper Pot is the national dish of Antigua. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I have my grandmother's pepper pot recipe. So I, I wanted to honour my grandmother. And uh, could you give us a little sneak preview of the pepper pot recipe? Uh, the pepper pot recipe is really interesting. My, mother, my grandmother used to smoke her own oxtail, Matthew. How cool is that? So she used smoked oxtail, <laughs> uh, salt beef, salt pork, all of these different beautiful meats, and you soak them all overnight to sort of draw some of the salt out. And then you cook you cook each part separately. It's very African in its construction, actually. So it's quite African in its um, structure, pepper pot. So you make, you kind of simmer the meat down, you poach it in some quite light spices, really. It's not... Uh, I'll, t- I'll talk about this later. So you poach the meat down and then you cook all the vegetables like aubergine, um, calaloos, running spinach, uh, edo tops, kale, all the greens you can get your hands on, basically. You chop it all down and then you and, bla- and then you add black-eyed peas and then you put the meat back in and you simmer it down. It takes two days to make, basically. And it's not wow. that heavily spiced, but it's really, really full of flavour. And one of the misconceptions another misconception about caribbean food is that everything's really hot like pepper hot chili hot and it's really really not Mm -hmm. we don't it's not that we're seeking heat there are some things that are hot but actually what we're seeking is depth of flavor Mm. so you can use spicy but not necessarily loads of chili all the time no you just need that that sort of heavyweight punch of flavor rather than the the little counter punching of chili and stuff yeah well and that's also what you get from the two days of cooking isn't it? You know, you get the you get the depth. Andy, listen, we know you're in the middle of filming. You're in a GBM, and we've we've kept you for long enough. But we've got a couple of listener questions, if that's all right. Oh, hit me. So, what I like this one. This is because this is also about dads. Um, Steve has asked, where is one place that you, Andy, would like to take Dad Matthew to eat that he probably hasn't been? Oh. Where would I like to take you? I'd like to take you to Antigua, Matthew. Well, I've just, just excuse me, I'll, I'm there. <laughs> I would. I'd like to take you to Antigua, and there's a, a lovely woman there uh, called Janet, 
who makes the, who makes the most incredible, she's Guyanese and she's got a, a cook shop, they call it. She's got a cook shop. It's called Compliments to the Chef. And it's on the road. It's on Potter's Main Road in Antigua. And she, oh my Lord, she makes the best roti and Guyanese pepper pot, which is different to the Antiguan pepper pot. They use a thing called casserite, which is like a kind of molasses and it's really dark and rich and unctuous. Mm. You would just put your True, face David. in You'd love it, Matthew. You have, you have talked me into it. Let us, let us go <laughs> off. Let us trip to... No shit. <laughs> Shape us off into the into the horizon. I can't think of anything better. I think it'd be absolutely glorious. What was the other question? Darling? Okay, and then uh, so Lucy wants to know what is one thing in your kitchen that you couldn't live without? That I couldn't live without. I mean, there's uh, I could probably live without much. There's one thing I wouldn't want to live without, and that is my um, my food my food processor because I'm lazy and I like to every at the beginning of every week or every 10 days or something I make a thing called green seasoning so I just put in the onions the garlic the ginger chilies herbs and all, anything else around you and you blitz it all up with oil and then I keep that oil in a jar in my fridge and it seasons loads of things that I cook throughout the week and it just is a really brilliant shortcut so you know sometimes when you yeah. want to cook the thing you can't really be bothered to do is do the garlic and all the little mirepoix and all of that yeah. stuff so this gives you a sort of brilliant little sofrito starter thing. It's kind of uh, essential to Caribbean cooking, uh, green seasoning. So my food processor, which gives me my jar of green seasoning, I think. That, I, I mean, I've I love that. green seasoning about it, but I can't really be asked. Thank you. <laughs> I, it's such a good it's such a good idea I was saying this the other day to my partner I was saying it would be so nice let's just like every Sunday make a few little seasoning staples yes. so that during the week you're ready to go and it's then you can a very like, good idea you know, or stick a bit of chicken in you season it up and you know you don't have that 20 minutes of like annoying fiddling it's exactly. the foundation for many a dish okay one last question Annie yes darling we ask each of our guests this what is your dirty dish what is that food that dirty. you dirty in the sense of you don't want anybody else to know that you actually eat this, but this is what you reach for in moments of, you know, when you need a bit of cheer or comfort or something? Right. Well, there's a few of those. It's <laughs> <laughs> not, is it just one? Um, I, I, and they are? I think, I, I don't, I like a pie. A pie is my thing. So I probably don't make pies as often as I should because I can't be bothered to make pastry. So I will buy a pie, like a good pie with lovely short crust pastry, and I will buy gravy, which is really lazy. <laughs> pie and gravy. But can we, and this is this is really important when we discuss pies, can we ascertain that we are talking about a pie with a bottom, sides and with a top? With a bottom on it, absolutely. Gotta have a bottom. <laughs> Otherwise, it's a stew with a lid. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I mean... <laughs> Not calling it a pie. There's no bottom on it. It's not a pie, is it? Stop lying to me. There's Gotta have a bottom. Can give you a pie, and there's no. How can you not have a bottom on a pie? I mean, <laughs> we could do a podcast just on that. We I, could. Well, Andy, I'll tell you something. <laughs> two more part. I see two more podcasts coming up. One on pies, and I think because there is a a wealth of pie cultures in this country, and uh, and the other one is when your book comes out. Will you come and talk to us again about your book? Oh, my book comes out in spring. My book comes out in spring. I'm really excited about it. You have to come. I'm having a really fancy 
launch at uh, the South Bank at the Queen Anne Hall. I know, I, I, who even am I, as people say to me? <laughs> who, even, who even are you? Who even are you, Andy Oliver? It's like, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm having a launch at the Queen Anne Hall um, in the spring, and I really hope you both... And, and will, you, will you do another podcast with us when the book comes out? Yeah, of course. Fantastic. You know, you know, I can't say no to you, Matthew. Ford. It's impossible. <laughs> oh God, you have no, you have no idea how much I, I miss you, and what a joy this has been talking to you. And thank you so much. You too. Yeah. You are. A, thank so you much so love. much. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Bye bye. Bye. Well, you see what I mean about the, the warmth, the energy, and the passion, and just, just, just what, what a person. What a person. I agree. She's kind of, she's got infectious energy and her enthusiasm and her passions are just really inspiring. And next week, I think we've got fish, haven't we, darling? Fish, fish, fish next week. All things fishy. All things fishy. There is a great deal to talk about when it comes to fish. Absolutely. The the good, the bad, the environmental, the friendly, the not so friendly. And the fishy. And the fishy. (laughs) 